last week where we began to get into chapter 2, it really focused on the Gentiles, uh, excuse me, the nation of Israel, the Jews, and how that they are in the same mess and the same problem that the Gentiles were in chapter 1. And we learned a great truth last week, and that is where the Gentiles uh, really uh, sin against God in their unrighteousness, the Jews sin against God in their self-righteousness. We saw how that in reality they're really the same, but it depends on what perspective you're looking at. The Gentiles just flat out uh, have nothing to do with the true God, nothing to do with uh, the all down through the Old Testament. They were totally against the nation of Israel and everything that God did for the most part. And yet the Jews who had God, the oracles of God, and all that God, and the blessings of God, turned into a self-righteous nation that rejected God just like the Gentiles did, but yet held him in the context that they pretended they were still doing all that they wanted to do. I think the, one of the greatest phrases that explains the nation of Israel during this time is the fact that they had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. And I think that uh, is really so true. We saw how that the Jews judged the Gentiles, yet, as I already said, they commit the same things themselves. And really, it was a great study on human nature. I never try to just give you the historical application I always try to show you the, how the practical application applies in your own life, and we learn some great things about how the Jews judge the Gentiles, uh, but yet uh, uh, how it applies to me and you. Because the practical application in Romans is, is very important for you and I to get. Remember we talked last week about how that, as a Christian, I took you over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, and I showed you how that a Christian is not to judge other people. Uh, we talked a lot about the Jews judging the Gentiles and how people like to judge other people. And, uh, you know, and that's the first thing they throw up to you, you know, don't judge me. But I took you to the Pauline epistles in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, and I showed you the New Testament principle or concept for you and for me. And I told you that I'm not the judge other people. My judgment of you, whether you're, and I may have an opinion, but I'll keep that to myself. But, you know what, I don't have a right to judge you in anything. You stand before God uh, just as I do, and I don't have a right to judge you in any way, shape, or form. But the Bible says, He that is spiritual judgeth all things. And I showed you how that as a Christian, I don't judge people, but I do have a right, and so do you, to judge the things that people do uh, if you want to have them in your life or not. There are some things that are not conducive to Christianity that people do. And though I don't make a judgment on the person, I can make a judgment as it's own, my own personal responsibility and my relationship with God, how it pertains to me. I showed you over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, that it talks about comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The spiritual things are what you allow in your life that you let in, and you compare those with the spiritual things in the Word of God, comparing what your life is to what the book says. And that's really a good guide, a good practical guide for every Christian uh, in this room and Christian in general. That you don't have a right to look at somebody and judge that person. But you do have a right to judge what they do, how it pertains to your own personal relationship with God if you want to be involved in it or not. And we learned another great truth as we opened up chapter 2, verse 1. And that was in the first verse where he says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man. And I showed you that that O man... That man in the Bible in Romans chapter 2 will always be a picture of the nation of Israel. You know, I think one of the hard things about the Bible, or if you're going to put the Bible in a hard deal, I think one of the hardest things for young Christians to get 
is how the Bible lays itself out in three applications. The Bible obviously has a historical application. And that's what you get, very frankly, most of the time. You go to churches someplace, and many times you'll get the historical perspective of it. But then the Bible has what we call a practical application or a, a spiritual application. That means how does it apply to you in your everyday living. And, of course, uh, many times you'll, you'll find that. People will get up and they'll give good, good teaching on, on what the spiritual application is. But there's a third application which is really like the key to all the Bible. I call it the spark plugs of the Bible. You know, you can have the fastest engine in the world. It can be the most, you build engines, it could be the hottest race car engine in the world. I hope I'm right on this. But if you don't put spark plugs in it, that engine doesn't work, does it? No. What? I, I walk out on those limbs sometimes, and even if you know where I'm going, any of you, and you know when I'm going and I'm wrong, just play along with me so I don't look dumb, okay? When it comes to the Bible, the engine is made up by the practical and the historical, but the spark plugs of the Bible are the doctrinal. What that Bible, the word doctrine in the Bible is to teach. When the Bible says over there in Timothy that the Word of God is profitable, the first thing that it's profitable for is doctrine. And when you look at the, this concept of, oh man, or the, this man in the Bible, doctrinally it's going to be a picture of an unsaved man. And I want you to see these because we're going to talk about, and I want you to get not only the historical out of this today, I want you to get the practical, but I want you to see how the doctrinal fits into this thing too. Inspirationally, this old man or the man in here is a picture of any Christian. That would be your practical application. But from a historical application, the man here is the nation of Israel. You know, I thought of a passage last week, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to you. Turn over to John chapter 5. I thought of this last week, and, uh, but we didn't have a time to get into it. We had a time factor, as always, and I didn't have time to add it in there. But here is what I consider the greatest example of what I mean when I say um, that when you find the word man in the Gospels, and I know we're not in the Gospels in Romans, but we're dealing with the nation of Israel. But when you find that we're in the Gospels, that it's talking about a man or maybe a woman. All the examples, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are filled with stories. Somebody asked Thursday night uh, a question, and, and, and the answer was that after the book of Acts, there's no more stories in the Bible. Why is it that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are filled with stories about people. When you get into the Acts, you don't really find the same kind of stories. It's more direct of what he's dealing with. But when you get into the Pauline epistles from Romans on, there are no stories. No more stories in the Bible. Why is it that uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are filled with stories about men, women, children, animals, all of those things? I'll tell you why that is. Because all of the stories in the Bible, in one form or the other, represent Israel's spiritual condition. So if you just have that key right there and start reading the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you apply that, you're going to learn more about the nation of Israel in your Bible than probably any other way you try to study it at this point in your life. And I want to show you, here's one of the greatest examples. First, uh, excuse me, John chapter 5, the gospel, verses 1 through 5. Now, bear with me as I read this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. 
For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now, watch this, verse 5. And a certain man, see that thing? And a certain man was there which had an infirmity 38 years. Now, let's pretend you're reading that. And I, I want to give you this example because if I don't show you how to do this, then me getting up and tell you all that I'm going to tell you in Romans chapter 2 five or nine or whatever, really doesn't do any good for you. You've got to see examples and learn how to apply them. Now, if I was reading that passage for myself, and I was coming down through that, I would know that, that this story, somehow, some shape, some form, is a picture of the nation of Israel's spiritual condition. Let's look at it. When you come down here, first of all, and it's a very interesting uh, a passage, uh, first of all, you're going to find that this is a picture, and I'm going to show you here in a moment, this, this man, this man represents the nation of Israel and their spiritual condition when Christ shows up. Now, I've got to throw this out to you. If you go get a commentary that's put out by the big wigs today, and uh, you go, to, go buy a commentary on the Gospel of John, or you go to most seminaries or most Bible colleges, here's what they'll tell you. When they read John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, they will tell you that verses 3 and 4 were added later by somebody else, that they really weren't in the, the original writing. And I'll tell you why they do that. First of all, <laughs> they don't know their Bible. Second of all, second of all, they've come up against a story in the Bible, and because they don't approach the Bible from a practical standpoint of seeing what you've got here and trying to elevate it to some scholarly concept, they lose the great teaching. And uh, they say down here in verse 4 that for an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the waters. And whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. They say that that doesn't fit with what's going on in the Old Testament. And of course, uh, that's a typical statement of somebody that doesn't know their Bible. First of all, you were told that there's nothing wrong with an angel coming down here and troubling the waters because you're told that the nation of Israel got the, got the law by the disposition of angels. God used angels all the time. And another situation is this. Once you see this, and this is where they fail, once you see this man as the nation of Israel, once you see this man here as, as uh, impotent. You know what impotent means? He's powerless. It talks about the fact that he's blind. He's blind spiritually, Israel is. He's halt. He has no walk with God. He's withered. He has no work for God. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus goes to Jerusalem and this man gets healed in Jerusalem. That's a picture of the Jews getting healed when Christ comes back in the millennium. If that wasn't at all, the Bible says that uh, it was by a sheep market. Now, why, why the details? Why did God tell you that this took place by the sheep market? I'll tell you why. Because it's built around the sacrifice, and the only sacrifice that can solve your powerless problems has to be found at the sheep gate. It's where they brought the sheep in to be sacrificed. It says Bethesda. You know what Bethesda means? It means mercy. We have everything in this story to show you historically that this man represents the nation of Israel who is powerless, blind, no walk with God, no work with God. And when you come down and look at this passage, you find that a, an angel went down in a certain season. And it, it, it shows you that when the waters got troubled, the first person that got in 
was the only one that got healed. You know what that, somebody says, that shouldn't fit. You're nuts if you know your Bible. You know what that shows you? That shows you that the Old Testament law was a failure. Under the Old Testament law, only one person could get in. Under grace of the New Testament, everybody can get in. And it's showing you the difference between the Old Testament setup, which was limited. This is the book of Hebrews, by the way. The whole concept of the book of Hebrews is that the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. And the story about this man, only one person getting in, shows you the failure of the Old Testament law. And then I'll tell you something else. And a certain man, verse 5, was there which had an infirmity 38 years. Now there's a little key there. Because if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14, oh, I know what you're taught, and it's generally true. But God counts things differently than we do. You see, we talk about them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and they did. But God cuts that time level down, and he looks at it differently. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14, you're going to find that the Bible says what Israel wandered in the wilderness, 38 years. You know who that man's a picture of? He's a picture of the nation of Israel. He's a picture of the nation of Israel, that, and it shows that Israel could not get healed under the, under the Old Testament economy. So Jesus shows up. And he heals the man without him getting into the water. And that's a great picture of Israel's spiritual condition at the first coming of Christ when you see it. And they're all laying around there waiting for the moving of the water. That will be found in Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48 when the water comes out of the holy oblation and comes down through the south end of Jerusalem into the Dead Sea and then out to all the other waters. And the whole earth gets healed by the moving of the water. Now, doctrinally, we could take that same story. Boy, this is a great message. I mean, not the one I'm preaching, the one I'm about to give you. Well, the one I'm preaching ain't bad either if you stop and think about it. But, but doctrinally, this is a great sermon. Because doctrinally, this man, here it comes, historically, doctrinally, and inspirationally. Doctrinally, this man's a picture of the latency in church period. He's a picture of a man that has no power, the church, today. He's a picture of the latest in church that has no spiritual insight. He's a picture of the latest in church that has no walk with God and no work with God. You see, that's how your Bible goes together. There's an historical application. There's a doctrinal application. And then there's an inspirational application. Inspirationally, that's a picture of you and me. Some of God's people sitting in this room, even though you're saved and on your way to heaven, you have no power of God in your life. Even though you're saved and you're sitting in this room, you have no walk with God. You have no work for God. And you're blind spiritually. Now, I, I say all of that to kind of preface where I'm going here because when we start to read in chapter 2 and start to go through these verses we're going to go through here in a moment, and we look at this man who he says, oh man, who he makes a statement to, I want you to remember, historically, we're dealing with God, dealing with a nation of Israel and their unrealistic and, un, and their self-righteous attitude toward uh, the Gentiles. Doctrinally, we're going to see today that this is a picture of any unsaved man you're going to meet in your life, deal with at work, or, or maybe uh, have in your life that you uh, meet someplace and you have some kind of relationship with. This is a picture of unsaved people. Inspirationally, it's a picture of messed up Christians. It's a picture of Christians who, who, uh, who always go through life with no power of God in their life, no spiritual insight, no walk, and no work. 
And uh, with that little introduction, I want to begin reading here in chapter 2. We're going to go back to the beginning of the chapter, even though we studied that last week, so we can put the context together. And then we're going to break down verses 4 through 11. So here we go. Therefore thou art excusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for that wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doth this, doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinketh thou this, O man, that judgeth them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness, and forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after the hardness and impotent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath, and revelation of righteous judgment of God, who will render every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first, also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. Now, Father... We thank you today for all that you've given us. We pray, Lord, that you'll bless us as we come through your word. Open up our hearts. Open up my heart, my mind, and let the Holy Spirit of God lead and guide in all that I say and all that these people take in. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, in verse 3, he asked a great question. And that question is this. And thinketh thou, O man, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Now, the answer to that, obviously, is no, you're not. But this chapter is loaded with not only what, where Israel is at historically and how they reject God and what God gave them, but it also fits right into an unsaved man. And it also fits into your life and my life. And I want to kind of go back and forth this morning that you can grasp this great chapter. But you never forget that, that, his, that historically he's writing this dealing with the nation of Israel directly to them. But there's an application because of the parallels between Israel and you and me as a Christian. And yet, you're going to find that Israel, the same thing that she does in rejecting God and, and coming up with the reasons why she rejects God, it's the same thing you're going to find unsaved people doing all the time when you try to talk to them about the Lord. Now, in the Bible, it says the judgment of God here, escape the judgment of God. In the Bible, we know there's seven judgments. And three of those judgments have to do with, with the people that we're talking about today in historical doctrine inspirationally. First of all, historically, uh, the judgment of God for Israel would be the tribulation period. They're going to go through a time here uh, where they go, the Bible says there's never been a time on the history of this planet that's like the time they're going to go through in the tribulation. An unsaved man, his judgment is going to be the great white throne, Revelation chapter 20 where he's going to stand before God. And the Bible says the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged. And those things were written in the book according to their works. The third judgment is the judgment of judgment seat of Christ. And that's where the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to give an account as Christians. You see, three distinct judgments. Really, seven judgments in the Bible. But these three fit up the way we're at today, and we've been through that many, many times. I even taught you the seven judgments when we come through our seven series. But with that in mind, now let's look at verse 4. Now we're going to come back and forth and put these things together. Now look at verse 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness, 
and the forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Now, there's Israel's problem. There's Israel's problem. Yet it's the same problem that every unsaved man has, and yet it's the same problem that we have as Christians many times in our lives. You know what it is? We despise the riches of God. Now, in an overall concept, we know that the riches of God is the Word of God. Luke chapter 16, 11 talks about, and I love it, Luke chapter 16, 11, Luke chapter 16, 11, Luke chapter 16, 11, talks about the true riches. And in an overall general context, we know that to be the Word of God. But within the Word of God, the Bible talks about in this passage here that there are, there are things that are talking about the, that are riches. The first one is forbearance. You know what forbearance is? I'm going to give these in a very non-theological way that everybody can understand it. You know what? When God says that one of the riches of Christ is forbearance, you know what that is? That is God doesn't come down and kill you and me when he should. He forbears. There's times in your life and in my life when God, let's face it, God just had to come down and whack us on the spot. He just had to open up a little bit of light coming from heaven and make us a grease spot on the sidewalk. But he doesn't. You know why he doesn't? Because God, one of the greatest gifts, one of the greatest riches, one of the greatest treasures of God is his forbearance. Then he goes on through there and he says something else. He says that, uh, he says that uh, long-suffering. Now, we talk about patience. And patience and long-suffering are not the same. Patience is what you have with your kids. Long-suffering is what God has with you throughout your lifetime. It means suffer long. See, when, I, when you have to be patient with your kids or when I'm patient with you, my wife says all the time, you're the most patient peop- person in the world and, and, and because what, what you take, deal with people. Well, that's, that's patience, you see. And I had a, in the ministry, you have to have patience. You have to have patience with your family. Husbands have to have the patience with their wives. Wives have to have patience with their husbands. That's patience. And God has patience with me, but greater than patience is long-suffering. You know what long-suffering means? God's in for the long haul with me. He suffers long. He suffers long. And you as a Christian need to move through patience in your spiritual growth and get to the place where you can suffer long with people. We're so quick to judge somebody or cut somebody off. We're so quick to make an opinion about something that if God treated us the way we treat each other, we'd all be in a hurt. We'd all be in a hurt. And, and sometimes, it's a, sometimes it's a situation where you've got to learn to suffer long, long-suffering. That's a riches that God has. And then another one he says is his goodness. And, of course, his goodness is Christ. The goodness of God is Jesus Christ. People say, my God. Some people say, my goodness. It's one and the same. Goodness, the only goodness in this world is Jesus Christ. He's God's goodness. And when you say, my goodness, you're talking about Jesus, who's God's goodness. And, and, and the goodness that comes with that is, is all of the things that God wants to do in your life, in Israel's life. And really, you know, you've got the riches of God, which are the true riches, which Psalms 119 says is David loves above gold, yea, above fine gold. And then the, the antecedent to that is the false riches of this world. And really, that's what life's all about. It's about the riches of God, somebody despising those things and loving the riches of this world. And, of course, we talked about that all the way back in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 where we laid out the ten vanities here a while back. 
And, uh, you know, I don't know about, and I, I, I like, the, you know me, I like definitive chapters. And I want to show you, uh, come over to Matthew chapter 21. I want to, I want to give you a, a definitive passage in the Bible that illustrates that illustrates what I'm talking about, about the long-sufferingness of God, about the patience of God, about the forbearance of God. And this is a great passage, incredible passage. This is one of the single most important passages to me in all of the Bible to help me put everything together. I told, uh, I told you last week, wait, let me give, you that, give me that little book back that I just gave you in church. I told you last week I brought that, that book in on the, the uh, ir- irresponsible Jews, and I told you how that there's a little book that you've got 60-some pages in it. You can read it in an hour or so, and it's got more information in it than you ever find. I found another one. I gave, gave one to some more back over there. I gave Ray this one. We talked about it this week, and this is one on church history. I mean, it's, and this one's got, whoo, this is good. This one's got pictures in it, man. I really love them. 24 pages, and it is such a concise concept, and I love things like that. I said all that to say this. The verse I'm about to give you is like this book or the book I gave you last week. It's a concise picture of really the Old Testament. It's, it's, it shows you in, in, what, 12 verses what God is doing in the Old Testament. Man, I like passages like that. I like passages that I can sit down and read in five minutes and then spend two hours trying to grasp it. But in five minutes, I get a complete overview of what God is doing. And in, in this particular case, it shows the long-suffering of God, the forbearance of God, and the goodness of God. Let me read for you Matthew chapter 21, picking up in verse 33. It says, Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard. And hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower. And he let it out to a husbandman. And he went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandman, and they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Now, if you would go out and buy a little commentary on Matthew, you'd be told that the parables are, uh, how does it go? The parables are, are earthly truths in a heavenly language. Oh, I love that one. Uh, I don't call them the parables. I call them the terrible parables. The terrible parables are not heavenly language in an earthly truth. The, t- the, heavenly par- the terrible parables are absolutely a doctrinal statement of God on what's going on. Now, I want to show you what you have here is your Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And what I'm trying to show you here is the long-sufferingness of God. I'm trying to show you that throughout the Bible, when God's dealing with the nation of Israel, He exercises that forbearance. He exercises that long-sufferingness, and He exercises that goodness. And Israel despised it. And then what I'm getting ready to come back and show you, as an unsaved man or woman, He does the same thing to you while you're alive. And you despise it. Then what I'm going to show you was a child of God. He does the same thing in your life as his child, and we despise it sometimes. That's where I'm going. Now, look what it says here. Verse 33, 21, 33. Matthew 21, 33. Oh, I read it already, didn't I? 
Now look at verse 33. It says, here another parable, there was a certain householder. Now, let me break down the characters for you here. And you can go into the Bible. We don't have time. This would be a great Thursday night question. I can go into great detail. But you got a householder. The householder is God, the Father. You have a vineyard. That's Israel. I could take you to, I don't know how many places in the Old Testament and Isaiah and show you that the vineyard is the nation of Israel. Then you have the husbandmen. Those are the leaders of Israel. And then you have the servants. Those will be the Old Testament prophets. And, of course, you have my son, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what you've got historically is a picture of God dealing with Israel. Verse 33 would run you to Genesis to 1 Samuel. Let's read it. Here another parable. There was a certain householder, God, which planted a vineyard, Israel, and headed it round about. He would taken care of it there in Joshua and in all those places, bringing them up, digged a wine press in it, built a tower, established them in the land, and then let it out the husbandman and went into a far country. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of the Bible from Genesis to 2 Samuel. You realize after 2 Samuel, God doesn't come down and do the great miracles like splitting the Red Sea anymore? You realize once you get into 2 Samuel, God, you know why he doesn't? Because God turned it over to somebody. The kings of Israel, the husbandmen. He turned it over to them and he goes into a far country. He takes his hands off and says, hey now, you run it. But I'm watching. Verse 34. Now when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen and they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and he unto them likewise. Now, the, the uh, when it, it, Bible says, when the time of the fruit drew near. You see, Israel was supposed to be a vineyard that bears fruit. And under the kings, God, and the kingdom of heaven, God intended for them to be a fruitful nation and bear the fruit. They didn't. That's why they're likened to a fig tree that is barren. That's what they're like into a vine tree that is barren. They didn't bear the fruit. When the servants show up, that'll be the Old Testament prophets. Hey, you can go back and read it for yourself. They go to Israel and they say, where's your fruit? And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants, Old Testament prophets, to the husbandmen, the kings of Israel. You can read all this in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. That they might receive the fruit. And the husbandmen, the kings of Israel, that would be Ahab, Omar, that would be uh, Isaiah, that would be all of them, Manasseh, all of them. And the husbandmen took his servants, the Old Testament prophets, and beat one. You can find that in the Bible. Killed another. You can find that in the Bible. And stoned another. You can find that in the Bible. And again, he sent other servants. These will be the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micaiah, Malachi, Zechariah. They go to Israel, the leaders of Israel, and they say, why haven't you bore fruit? That's the question. Finally, verse 37. But last of all, he said unto them, uh, his son. Here's the first coming of Christ. They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen, scribes and the Pharisees, Saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard. He's crucified outside the city, and slew him. Verse 40, second coming of Christ. When the Lord thereof of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Now you've just got a story that runs you from Genesis to the second coming of Christ, showing you in the Old Testament increments, and we could break it down even better than that, how it goes through, if we have the time, and breaks down that whole section. My point is this. 
When you recognize that that is Genesis to the second coming, the book of Revelation, you know what you see in there? Well, I'll tell you what I see. If I was God, I'd have killed them the first time they screwed up. If not the first time, surely the second time. You know how many prophets you got in the Old Testament? You know they were all persecuted. You know they were all beat. You know they were all hated. I don't know of one prophet in the Old Testament that anybody liked. They hated them. They hated them. But God, what you see through this, is God's long-suffering. God should have killed them a million times, should have wiped them off the face of the planet long before 606. But God, you see, his forbearance, his long-suffering, his goodness toward them. But verse 40 shows you that even God's goodness runs out sooner or later. Even his forbearance comes to an end. And even his long-suffering has a day when it stops. And, of course, that'll be when Israel gets judged in the tribulation period. And that's what verse 40 is talking about. When the Lord, therefore, the vineyard cometh, what will he do to those husbandmen? They're going to go through the tribulation period. But I want you to see when they're, what we're talking about under the treasures of God in Romans 2. The patient, the goodness, the long-suffering, the hand of God in every scenario. You put this in a practical sense, you know what? Basically, this is what I do every Sunday. And some of you don't like me. Every Sunday I ask you a question, maybe not directly, but indirectly, no matter what I preach. You know what I ask you? Where's your fruit? Every time we get up, I don't care where I start. What comes through, whatever message, whatever I'm preaching at the end of the day is simply, where are you at and what are you doing for God? And are you despising the things that God has given you? Are you taking for granted his long-suffering and his forbearance? Are you taking for granted the goodness of God? Israel does. Unsaved men certainly do. And unfortunately, many times God's people do. And many of you, verse 39 says that they took him and they threw him out of the, out of the vineyard and crucified him. You know what? Some of you have thrown him out of your life just as surely they threw him out of that vineyard. You see how that thing works historically, doctrinally, and inspirationally? Great stuff, man. Now, all this is true of Israel. It's also true of an unsaved man. The long-suffering of God, the goodness of God, the forbearance of God. He says in verse, uh, uh, he said down there, it leads us to repentance. You know why God does that? And this is one of the greatest concepts of God. Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is not willing that any should perish. If you're here this morning and you're an unsaved person, and I don't know where you're at with the Lord, it's hard in America today to get a crowd this size that, that you don't have somebody that's lost without Christ. But I don't know who you are. I don't know where you're at, where you're coming from. But I want to tell you this. I want to tell you this. God is not willing that you perish. In fact, God is so unwilling that you perish that when he originally created hell, the Bible says he created for the devil and his angels in Matthew. He never had you in mind. Because God is not willing that you should perish. He's not. Many times we look at Noah and the flood and how wicked that time was. And it was. Very wicked time. In fact, the Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall be in the coming of the Son of Man. The Bible says back in Genesis chapter 6 that all the imagination of man was wicked. We, we preach that all the time. And, I, and we say that all the time. And we put the emphasis on it all the time. And that's all true. But you know what thing most of the time we miss? God, who is holy, who hates sin, who hates ungodliness, who rejects everything that's unclean, put up with that ungodliness for 120 years before he brought the judgment on. You know what he says in 6.3? 
But my spirit shall not always strive with man, and he tells you he gave him 120 years. The Bible says that Noah was a preacher of God's righteousness. He was preaching the coming judgment, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. And God gave old Noah 120 years. Uh, he gave the wicked world a God who, who hates sin, who hates disobedience, who's against everything ungodly. He, he forbore, he forbeared 120 years. Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19 through 21, when once, talking about this same time period, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. The long-suffering of God. He waited 120 years every day, looking, hearing the ungodliness of people rejecting him, making fun of him, laughing at him. But he, his spirit strove with man for 120 years. Why? Because God is not willing that any should perish. That's a national treasure today. That's a treasure. Listen, if you wind up in hell, and I hope you don't, but if you wind up in hell, or as a Christian, you lose all your rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. You don't go to hell. An unsaved man does, but we're talking about the three applications here. Or the nation of Israel, as a nation, if they have to go through that terrible time called the tribulation, you can rest assured of one thing, ladies and gentlemen. Whether you're a child, child of God here this morning, that you're going to lose everything at the judgment seat of Christ. Whether you're an unsaved man and woman going to wind up in a lake of fire. Or whether the nation of Israel goes through the tribulation period, a time un unlike any other time. You can rest assured. One thing is absolute sure. God has done everything he could to keep you out of hell. I guarantee you, he's done everything he could to make sure you had a full reward as a Christian to the judgment seat of Christ. I guarantee you, he has done everything to Israel through his forbearance, his long-suffering, and his goodness. He has done everything that we might not face the judgment as an unsaved man, as an uh, out-of-fellowship Christian, or as a nation of Israel. Verse 4 says, you despised his riches. Look at verse 5. But after thy hardness and impotent heart, that is a heart that won't repent, treasures up unto thyself, oh, I love this, man, wrath against the day of wrath. Somebody says, what's that mean? Hang on, we'll get there. And the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You know what life is? Life is the treasures of God in your life or the treasures of wrath in your life. The investment of your life. The investment of your life is what you do with the treasures of God or the treasures of wrath. The treasures of wrath is the reason why you've got every problem you've got in your life. Proverbs 16, 6 says, The house of the righteous is much treasure, but the, in the revenues of the wicked is much trouble. Now it says the treasures of his wrath. And it says, wrath against the day of wrath. What's that mean? What does it mean when it says a man gets into wrath against the day of wrath? I'll tell you what it means. It means that all your life, you go through hell on earth. All your life, you have failed marriages, failed businesses, failed expectations. All your life was an unsaved man. You go through this life, and you think, you think you're happy. You think you have it all. I don't care what you have. That Bible says in the book of Romans, there's two things. There's the peace of God, and there's the peace with God. The peace with God is salvation. When you get saved, you make your peace with God. That peace leads to peace 
of God. That's your daily walk. And there ain't no amount of money in this planet can buy those two. That's why you got people that got millions of dollars, millions and billions of dollars that wind up committing suicide, wind up killing themselves, wind up burning their lives out, wind up wasting their life, wind up with so many problems, it's unbelievable. You know why? Because with all your money, you can't buy the two things that man wants so desperately to have, and that is peace with God and the peace of God. That comes from the treasures of God, from understanding His long-suffering, His forbearance. And if that wasn't enough, you go, you go through everything. You, you, the, the wrath of against the day of wrath. You go through the bad time. All of this and all of that. And then at the end of your life, what do you got to look forward to? You go to hell for eternity. Wrath in this life against the day of wrath when you're dumped in a lake of fire. Wow. And as a Christian, don't get too high and mighty about the fact that, well, you know what, I'll just go to the judgment seat of Christ. And I've actually had some people tell me this. Saved people. Say, and faced with the judgment seat of Christ. Well, you know what, I know I'm saved. I'm going to live my life the way I want to, and then I know I'm saved, so I'll just take my chance at the judgment seat of Christ. You're an idiot. Absolute idiot. Idiot. I-D-I-O-O-T. Idiot. That Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 called the judgment seat of Christ the terror of the Lord. You think you're going to walk up there and he's just going to say, ah, bad boy. Come on now, it's heaven. <laughs> Come on. I got news for you. And I'll tell you something else. He says, he says, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasures up to thyself wrath against the day of wrath. And the revelation of the riches of the judgment of God. The, the key to this whole thing is, God told you already what's going to happen. It's no surprise. It's no surprise. You're not going to get to the judgment seat of Christ and say, oh, I didn't know. Because God's not going to hold you there what you know or what you didn't know. He's going to hold you accountable for what you could have found out but didn't. He knows how we play the game. Verse 6 says, who will render every man according to his deeds. Remember last week, this is why I told you we don't have to judge people. I don't have to judge people. I told you last week, I showed you in Romans 2 too. But we are sure the judgment of God is according to truth against them that commit such things. That's why I don't have to judge anybody. I don't have to look at somebody's life and say, well, that they're unsaved or they're lost. That's not for me to judge them. I do look at what they do and I say, that's not for me. I don't want that in my life. <clears throat> I judge things. I don't judge people. <clears throat> but I want to tell you something. <clears throat> He's going to render every man according to his deeds. Years ago, I, I heard a, a great preacher. He's dead now. been dead for many, many years. It was back in the 1980s. He was one of the last of the great Philadelphian preachers. His name was R.G. Lee. R.G. Lee come out of the out of the Southern Baptist Convention early in his life. He uh, he preached the word of God. He was an evangelist. He he just was an incredible, incredible guy. Even right up to the point when he died. And you know what he preached? He, he's remembered for one message that he preached. I guarantee you, he preached thousands of great messages. But the message that he's remembered for, and I look at it this way: back in the 80s. The church was fast moving into the Laodicean church at a rapid pace. 
And he's one of the last voices that called out to men and women to understand. And his great message was simply, payday someday. Payday someday. Payday someday. Boy, he could preach it. Payday someday for the nation of Israel is going to be the tribulation period when they go through that dark, terrible time. Payday someday for the unsaved man is going to be the great white throne judgment of the unsaved woman. Payday someday for the child of God is going to be at the judgment seat of Christ when they stand there and look at the one that died for them and look at the one that agonized for them and then they look back so frivolously at their life as they threw it away. Payday someday. This is why I don't judge people. It's why you shouldn't judge people. God's judgment is sure and it's fixed. And God will make sure everybody out there gets what they rightly deserve. And I guarantee you, he'll make sure we get what we rightly deserve. You know, that's one of the great things and a great... Now, maybe to you that's not a comfort. To me, that's a comfort. Because down here, people judge you when they don't know you. People down here lie about you when it isn't true. People down here will spread rumors and do everything to do against you and me and everybody else. And that you, you have no recourse to that many times. But the great thing about God's judgment, good or bad, at least I'm in a place now where I know what I get is exactly what I deserve. I can deal with that. I can deal with that. As long as it's right, as long as it's righteous, I can handle that. Verse 7, to them, all three of them, Israel, unsaved man, and Christian, who being by patient continuance in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. You know what that verse says? That's a great verse. That verse says you follow the light that God gives you and he'll always lead you to the truth. That's the best advice I can give anybody in this world. Somebody comes to me and says, Bob, I want to I really build a relationship with God in my life. What can I do? Read the Bible? Obviously. Study the Bible? Sure. Come Sunday morning, Sunday, uh, come Sunday morning and Thursday night and get into all the classes as you have. Yeah, as you grow, yes, absolutely. But all those are important. But I'm telling you, the greatest thing you can do, the greatest thing you can do, the greatest single thing you can do as a child of God is to always stay with the light that God has given you because it will always lead you to truth. The moment you get outside that book, the moment you get outside those principles, the moment you get outside the Word of God, whether it's Israel, whether it's the unsaved man, whether it's the Christian, you're in trouble. You stay with the light that God has given you. You know, we're living in economic upheaval times. And I told you a little bit a couple of weeks ago, it was last week, how that you can really look at this thing and see where this thing's going. I think gas is going to be $4 a gallon by the time we get into the summer. And uh, I, it just, it's crazy. You go look, I went to, we went to the grocery store the other night. I used to go into the Hy-Vee grocery place over there, which I love Hy-Vee, and go get a cup of coffee. It's 52 cents. This time it was $1.07. Doubled his, over doubled his price. The coffee wasn't that good. So I take my thermos. I get my money's worth out of the thing, you know. I'm just kidding. But we're in a bad time. People think we're, we're in a recession. Some people think we're heading for a depression. And it's a terrible, terrible time. And everybody, you know, everybody's quivering. The stock market's up and down. I mean, the stock market's left and right. Every day, if you've got a 401k or any kind of investment, you look at that thing, it just gets eroded more and more every day. Where once we had a time of prosperity where it was all going up, now it's coming down. And that's just the way it is. <clears throat> People get very 
unsettled in times like this. Personally, I think it's a great time to win people to Christ. Because sometimes they have to lose a little treasure before they really get a reality of life. But uh, we're in a mad, we're in a mad, bad state. But I want to tell you something. Now, I'm not an investment counselor. Well, I am kind of. It just isn't with the world's investments. But a lot of truths are parallels here. You know what? If you would talk, sit down and talk to an investor, say you got money invested in something, or you're going to invest money in something, and you want to, you know, and you want to prepare for your, your retirement or whatever, and you're looking at the times around you, or maybe you have an investment, and you're nervous because every three months you get that statement and you're less money than you had last time, and pretty soon, you know, you're going to owe them money. <laughs> And you get worried about that. If you were to go down and sit down and talk to an investor, a good guy, a good, somebody that really is a good investor, here's what he'd tell you. Here's what he'd tell you. He said, first of all, make good investments. Get somebody who knows the investment world better than you. Get somebody who understands what's going on and understands the market. Obviously, nobody's 100% wizard in this thing, but you've got to have some expertise and some common sense. The first thing he would tell you is he would make good investments. Get somebody who knows more about it than you do, sit down with them, find out what your options are, and based on the information you get, make the best investments you can if you're going to invest your money. The second thing he would tell you is this. No matter what the market does, stay with what you have. If you've made good investments, the standard idea is that write it out with the good investment that you have. The standard idea is that the market's always up and down and it's going to come back up. And what he's saying is the last thing you want to do is run around and start, oh, I lost $50 on this, this stock, invest it someplace else. Oh, write it out. If you made good investments, stay with the good investments that you made unless something tragically happens that it becomes a, not a good investment anymore. But don't run all over the place and let your emotions drive you that I'm going to go do this. Oh, I'm down, I'm down $1,000. Oh, sell everything we got and buy something out over here. Oh, it's down now, $2,000. Let's go back to this one. It's up now. Now, some people to do that. You make good investments. Get somebody to help you to sit down and understand the investments, and then you stay, write it out with what you have based on the information you have that it's a good investment. Let me tell you something. That's the same kind of advice I give people when it comes to your spiritual life and it comes to riding out this storm to the rapture of the church. First thing, make good investments. I'm talking about your money now. Make good spiritual investments. Make good investments. He said that if you follow the light God gives you, it'll lead you to truth, all right? Then make good investments, make the right kind of investments, make them in eternal things, set your affections on things above, put your treasure up in heaven, make good investments, and then when the storm comes, ride it out with the truth you got. It'll get you through. It'll get you through better than any economic stimulus. It'll get you through better than anything that any investment man can give you. Because these things, these investments are eternal. Not your 401k. These things are eternal. These are the true riches. You make the right investments and then you stay with what's right. You follow the light that God gave you. It'll always lead you to the right path and to the right truth. And don't ever deviate from it. You know why? Some people get all messed up. They can't do that. 
Some of you are emotionally basket cases and unstable spiritually, just like people out there in the stock market are financially. Where they run back and check the stock market five times a day, you're constantly asking for verses in the Bible that will hold you up. You're the same crowd. You just got the world's riches over here, and neither one of you can believe in what you got. God gave you the book. You've been safe in the Word of God three or four years. You ought to be at the place now where you're actually making good investments in your life, spiritually speaking. Look at verse 8 and 9. But unto them that are contentious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doth evil to the Jew first and also the Gentile. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man. Now here it comes. Here's the principle of Galatians 6, 7. Whatever you reap, you sow. God's people are famous for sowing their wild oats and then praying for crop failure. Doesn't work that way. When the band plays, the band wants to get paid at the end of the night. When you rent the building, the landlord wants the rent due on the building. You reap what you sow. Uh, and it says tribulation and anguish. When a person comes to the place that you're contentious, they won't obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness. They, they forsake, they despise the, the principles, the long-suffering, and they build to themselves the revenues of the wicked. Then upon their soul comes the tribulation and the anguish. Now for Israel, that'll be the tribulation period. It's also their whole life. They've never had a moment's peace since 606 B.C. And at the first coming of Christ, it only got worse when they looked at their Savior hanging on a cross and they made the stupid statement, let his blood be upon us and our people. Man, anything would have been better than saying that because God took them at his word. And for them, the, the anguish and the tribulation of the soul is going to be their tribulation encounter. For an unsaved man it's, or woman, it's going to be wrath against the day of wrath. You live your life totally pretending you're happy. But when you go to sleep at night, it's empty. When you go to a funeral or you hear about somebody die, you get afraid inside. When things get all out of whack, you don't have anything to turn to. Oh, sometimes we put on a great front on the outside, but inside we're like water poured out on the ground. We're afraid. We don't know how to deal, how to cope. We try to put on a front so everybody will think we're strong, but inside we're really not. Or there's nothing there. You're powerless. No walk with God, no work with God. And your life is unfulfilled. You have one problem after another. Oh, a few, few little bright peaks, but oh, for the most part, there's, it's emptiness. It's loneliness. And you all kinds of problems. You make bad choices, bad decisions. You get in bad relationships. You get into this. You get into that. And after, after a life of anguish to your soul, wrath against the day of wrath, you get to die and go to hell for all of eternity. Wow. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man. Saved person lives their life outside the principles of the Word of God, doing their own thing. Oh, they get to go to heaven. Yes, their sins have been washed under the blood. But it's a life of grieving the Holy Spirit of God. 
tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man. It, it affects them emotionally, physically, spiritually, your children, your marriage. And then for you at the end, you show up in the judgment seat of Christ and you lose everything that God had for you. We've all had this experience where we really wanted something really bad and we went out and bought it and, about, and it cost a lot of money and a month later you could kick yourself in the rear end for going out and buy it because you now need the money for something else and you see how stupid it really was when you bought it. We've all been there. We've all been there. We all can understand that analogy. Well, I'm going to tell you something. No, at the judgment seat of Christ, you never have to go to hell as a Christian. The judgment seat of Christ is for you and for me, and that judgment is not based on, uh, on you dying and spending a, turning in a lake of fire like an unsaved man. But I want to tell you something. If you think, if you could just take that simple illustration I just gave you and, and put it and magnify it a hundred million times and think of standing at the throne of God and your new glorified body with the mind of Christ, when you fully now in an instant realize everything that God did for you, it's not clouded by all that you have in your life now. You can't brush it away because you love somebody else or something else more than you do God. You are standing there confronting the one that died for you and in the first time in your life, it should have been done down here, but you refuse to do it. For the first time in your life, you're looking at the eyes of the one that died for you. You understand to the fullness of how he agonized on the cross for you. There's no more brushing it over and rationalizing it. You now fully understand the agony on the cross that was paid for you and for me. And then you realize all that he did. And then you see in an instant all that he had for you. And then in another instant, you see what you gave it up all for. God help us. God help us. Verse 11 says, for there is no respect for a person with God. You know, life is really not complicated. We like to make it more complicated than it is. God has one standard by which it all runs by. One standard. And that standard is, is the Word of God. And you're either going to make the investments in the true riches, or you're going to make the investment in the worldly riches. One's going to lead to the peace of God and peace with God. The other one's going to lead to the uh, the going in the wrath against the day of wrath and upon every soul of man, tribulation and anguish. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. Now you can see in Romans, and I hope by this, how this thing lays itself out. This is why Romans is such a marvelous book. We start by looking at chapter 1 and chapter 2, the Jews versus the Gentiles, both in a mess from two different angles. Now we continue on with that, but we see where he's writing beyond that. He's not writing just from a historical perspective. He's showing you and me that the things that got the Jews in the mess that we get in is the same thing that's going to lead an unsaved man to the lake of fire and going to lead a saved person to be naked at the judgment seat of Christ. Life's not complicated. In dealing with people, I've used this illustration. Probably everybody in here has heard it, but there's probably one or two maybe that never heard this illustration. So <clears throat> I use it all the time. It's one of the greatest single illustrations I ever found that really makes my point that everybody can get it. And uh, we're all here today, and, I, you know, I don't know where you're at with the Lord. I really don't. But we're all here today, and we're all in one category or the other. We're either saved or we're lost. 
And I'm not here to judge whether you are or not. That's between you and God to work out. And then the saved people are in another two categories. You're either what God wants you to be or you're not. And I'm not here to judge you on that either. That's between you and God. But I am here as an Old Testament prophet was sent to the nation of Israel to ask you a question. Where's your fruit? Where's your fruit? Now, if you hate me for that and you're mad for that or you don't like that, then I'm in good company because that puts me with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the boys back there. You know what they did to Jeremiah? They put a rope under his arms and lowered him down into a dung pit to his arms and left him there. Now, that's a ministry, isn't it? In a dung pit up to his armpits, lowered him down because they didn't like what he said. Left him down there. Up there having a great time. That's what they did with the prophet of God in the Old Testament, Jeremiah. And uh, those guys had a tough time of it. But they had the truth of God and they were going to a people of God that didn't want to hear the truth anymore and they preached the truth anyhow. My, my favorite one is Micaiah when he spoke to, over there in 1 Kings twenty two fourteen. You know what he said? He got smacked for what he said. And he looked back and he said, look, let me tell you something, bud. What the Lord says unto me, that will I speak. Whew, tough guy. Tough guy. Say I come home next week. My wife says to me, honey, the washing machine's not working. We're going to have to call the repairman. I say to her, well, I don't have a problem doing that, but you know what? Sometimes those things have to recycle. Sometimes they got a button on the back and something makes the button pop out and it don't work. It's like some cars, if you hit them in the back end too hard, they shut off and you got to find a button underneath. You know how those things are? And I said, we got an owner's manual here, and it's got a thing to troubleshoot, and it's got an 800 number you can call to get help. I'm going to do that because, you know, a pairman come out, he's going to cost us $200, you know, and he's going to say you need a new one. Now it's going to cost another $500. I said, let's just try it. It doesn't cost anything. And, you know, I'm so mechanically inclined anyhow, sweetheart. Let me, let me see this thing. So our house is probably, you know, like yours. Maybe your house is bigger, smaller. Maybe you live different color paint. But in one sense, it's all the same. In your kitchen someplace, you have one or two drawers that's filled with all kind of owner manuals from everything you bought since 1956. <laughs> we got them. We got stuff now that we ain't had for 30 years, but I still got the owner's manual. <laughs> so I go over to the drawer, you know, start pulling them out, <clears throat> trying to find everything. I found everything, you know, but I can't find the one for the washer. But I looked at my wife and I say, I can't find the one for the washer. But you know what? I got the owner's manual for the, for the, uh, for the dishwasher. Now, I'm going to go through that and going to see if I can't fix the washer. Now, let me ask you a question. How stupid is it for me, a 20th century modern educated man, to think that I have a chance to fix my washing machine by going through the handbook for the dishwasher and using the troubleshooting points for the dishwasher to fix my washing machine. You know why it won't work? Because there's two different designs involved, ladies and gentlemen. One design was designed for the washer. The other design was designed for the dishwasher. And the two are not compatible. The books aren't the same. The parts aren't the same. Though I could make them fit if I really had a mind to do it. They're not the same. There's two different designs involved. And it's just, as it's just absolutely ludicrous for me to stand up here and say to you, that's how you fix your washer with a handbook from your, from your dishwasher. But it's just as also absurd 
for you to take and un not understand that God made you and designed you. You're God's creation. You're maybe not all God's children, but you're all God's creation. And when God made you, he gave you a handbook that fixed every problem that you got. That handbook will tell you how to troubleshoot yourself. It'll tell you how to get rewired, refired. It'll tell you how to get reconditioned. It'll tell you how to get a new paint job. It'll tell you how to get new rubber belts on. It'll tell you how to fix your hoses. It'll tell you how to do everything about you you need to know to do. It'll take this carbon-14 unit that God made, and it is the handbook that'll fix every problem you'll come up with. How absurd it is for you and me to think that we can fix you with some other book or some other method other than what God designed. I'd have a better chance of fixing my washing machine with a dishwasher handbook than you will fixing your life outside this book right here. God is long-suffering. God is forbearing. God's goodness. God doesn't want you to be in the condition you're in today. Maybe you're deep down inside, you're going through some struggles, or you're going through some heartache, or you're going through your, your own emptiness. God doesn't want you there. God doesn't want you there. I think one of the greatest messages you can give to the men down in the missions, and you've all given some really great messages, and I'm, I'm sure that, that they will tonight, but uh, uh, my, one of the greatest messages you can convey to those guys is, you know what, guys, you're here, and you know what? God never intended for you to be here. God didn't put you here. Some of you got attitudes like God put you here. Some of you got attitudes like somebody else put you here. The truth of the matter is you need to readjust your attitude and find out that you put yourself here. Now, God doesn't want you here, and God can get you out. I mean, he may want you here, but he doesn't want you to stay here. He wants you to get out. He wants you to bear fruit. He wants you to be everything that God has for you. He wants to give you everything, and he's got the long-suffering, the forbearance. God should have killed us years ago. The first utterance out of our mouth that was defiling to God, God should have just stamped on me like a cockroach. But he had forbearance. He had long-suffering. The key is, wherever your investment is today is what your life is. Your life is the product of investing it in the true riches or it's the product of investing it in whatever you invested it in. But God doesn't want you to be in the condition you're in today. He wants you to be profitable. He wants you to be everything that he wants you to, has for you. And he wants your life to be a light of, life of fruit bearing and a light to everybody else in this world. And it only comes by fixing your problems with the handbook God gave you. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Now maybe you're here this morning 